You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. And I'm your host, Jim Friend. Well, welcome back, everybody. I hope you're having a terrific week. We are trucking along through the fall season here. The leaves are falling and the cold air is just starting to creep in here in beautiful Pennsylvania. And my wife, Kristen, has been super busy this fall. You know, many of you know that Kristen has a website. It's at kristenscrosses.com. Over the last year, she's been producing these prayer videos on YouTube, and it was something that she started and that she learned at the start of the pandemic. Her mission was just to put together four videos, one for each of the four decades of the rosary, and we sat down one afternoon as a family, and we all, all five of us, prayed the the four decades of the rosary, and she created these slides so that you could watch the video, you could pray with our family, and, and read the words along with the prayers. Well, to all of our surprise, a little over a year later, and almost three million views of just those four videos, she's just continued to build out that site. There's over 50 prayer videos now, and you can find prayers like the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, a Novena to Mary, Undoer of Knots, prayers to St. Joseph, and so much more. So I'm just a proud husband bragging about her because this ministry has literally touched people all over the world, and it's just incredible. She just now started to publish a daily prayer video also, so I wanted to let you know that there are daily prayers that include the gospel, a reflection, the daily rosary, and a lot more. So if you have a long commute, or if it's something you like to actively pray, or maybe even have it going on in the background in your office, I invite you to go to kristenscrosses.com, and you can also find a link to the show notes of this episode. I'm a proud husband. What can I do? i got to brag about my wife. Uh, She does amazing things and continues to support me and the kids in countless ways. So with all that said, let's get to work. This past week, I had the opportunity to speak with Father Jim McDermott. He's a Jesuit priest and a writer for America Magazine. Father Jim writes about pop culture and our faith, and so, obviously, I'm a fan of both, and I was interested in learning more about Father Jim. This was a great conversation because Father Jim shares his experience as a writer for pop culture, but also about his experience of writing an op-ed this year about his life as a gay priest and the support that he received from his community after he wrote this article. I think you're really going to enjoy meeting Father Jim McDermott today. So, without further ado, here's our conversation. Well, we're live on Facebook, and we're here with Father Jim McDermott. Father, thank you for joining us on Advancing Your Church. It's great to meet you today. Thank you. It's it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm just going to offer a, a little background on, on Father Jim before we begin our conversation today. Father Jim is a member of the Jesuit community at Loyola Marymount University, a screenwriter and a regular writer on TV, movies, pop culture, and spirituality. He is the Los Angeles correspondent of America Media, originally from the Chicago area, Father Jim studied literature at Marquette and Harvard Universities and entered the Jesuits in 1992. He then studied liturgy and Old Testament at the Weston School of Theology in Massachusetts, where he received his master's in divinity. He earned an MFA in screenwriting from UCLA and interned in the development department of the AMC Network. He was ordained a priest in 2003. In his Jesuit formation years, he served as an English teacher, drama coach, and bus driver for the Jesuits' Red Cloud Indian School on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Father Jim has also spent a year working in and exploring Australia. While living in New York, he was an improv comic as well as a writer, 
and continues to write a weekly newsletter along with his tweets and blogs on pop culture and spirituality. And he occasionally writes about how television, believe it or not, can help your spiritual life. Welcome, Father Jim. So great to meet you today. Thank you. Now, just one correction. In July, I moved to working full-time as an editor at America Magazine in okay. New York. So I'm actually based in New York now as oh, of wonderful. July. Yeah. Oh, you're not that far from our home office. We're, uh, we're we're based in Manhattan as well. That's okay. great. Oh, great. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. And and I, as I understand it, the editor-in-chief just announced that he's going to be stepping down from America Magazine. Yeah, actually, uh, Matt Malone, who's been the editor for almost 10 years, he's going to do one more year or about 15 months, and then he'll be stepping down. I was an editor here in the early 2000s, and then I've just come back. The place is like night and day. It's It's tremendous what he's done in that 10 years and the staff that he's hired. It's sad. It's sad for me because I love him, but it's exciting too, because he's done incredible work at putting this place to like the next level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, moving, moving, uh, what the article said is he moved you guys into the digital age, which I'm a digital subscriber and appreciate getting it on my iPad uh, every couple of weeks. And uh, just, it's a tremendous resource and I'm sure very uh, time consuming ministry, but well worth it. It reaches all around the world. When I started in 2004, Tom Reese would talk about wanting to be where we are today. And it really took Tom and then Drew Christensen and and then finally Matt. It really took Matt to be able to dream or figure out how to get us to that place. It's it's incredible. It's incredible. Well, Father, you have such an incredible and interesting, diverse background. You don't see a lot of priests with backgrounds in screenwriting and media and all that, which obviously plays into the blog and the many things that you've done. Tell me, was your road to the priesthood, the road to your vocation always clear to you? Or what what is your vocation story? Tell us a little bit about how how you got where you are today. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I'm the oldest of four kids. We'd go to church on Sunday or Saturday night, actually. We'd go to CCD. I went to public school. I never thought about being a priest. I I went to Marquette University as an undergrad. I really didn't do much in terms of Catholic stuff there, but I was an RA in a residence hall, and there was a Jesuit who who lived in every dorm. So I did that for two years, and the first year, I thought that was really strange. And I was like, oh my God, there's a priest in this building. I'm going to stay away because I just didn't have any context for that. He was really helpful to me and to a lot of other people in terms of pastoral support. And sort of, for me, it was like advising me on how to help some students that were having issues. I got to know him better. I got to meet other Jesuits. I was intrigued by the relationships they seemed to have with each other, the kind of camaraderie, their take on the church, which seemed really intelligent and also a bit irreverent, which is pretty much my own (laughs) <laughs> sort of, I hope I don't know if I'm intelligent, but irreverent. Right. Sure, like, <laughs> I get a little nervous around too much traditional piety. It's just not the way I was raised. So they got me interested, and then I went to graduate school, and I met more Jesuits. Through all of that, I I decided to enter. That's wonderful. At, at what point? I'm curious. Were you were you a stand up comic? Not a stand up. I wish I, someday. I hope I'm someday you still comic. have aspirations. Awesome <laughs> for sure. I did improv when I was in New York before. And okay, let me just be honest. Like by saying I did improv, what that really means is I took classes at UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade, sure. and performed with my my class group. But I was yeah. not terribly good at it. My life is more funny in spite of myself than because I choose because uh, I yeah. make the right funny choices. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. In doing some research on you, you you've 
you, you touch a lot of different kinds of pop culture. I, I was watching a panel you were on called Jedi and Jesuits Explore the Deep Side of yeah, a Galaxy wow. Far, sure. Far Away. What were some of your takeaways from that conversation? Because it's just the way they, they tried to tie our spirituality to the Force and then just kind of the, the relationships and the stories. What, what were some of your, your thoughts on that conversation? Yeah, that was a conversation at Fordham University a couple of years ago as Rise yeah. of Skywalker was about to come out. It's funny, it, came, it was before the movie came out I think we were all hoping for something different than we got. <laughs> well, the movie, yeah, kind of. <laughs> what I love about the conversations around Star Wars is the way that themes of redemption and mercy are so central to that story, mm-hmm. or the way that people end up kind of sav- saving each other, that it's about mm-hmm. community. It's a community of heroes. And there's a sense of sort of embracing the shadow side of ourselves that, and the yeah. consequences if we don't do that, that I think is really wise and interesting. Yeah. Well, it was inspiring to me. I mean, those were the the movies I grew up with, the original trilogy. And mm-hmm. and then, of course, you know, just now experiencing the, the final trilogy it was and I, I, I share your opinion. I was a little disappointed with the with the final movie and the way they wrapped up these nine movies as a screenwriter. How would you have tied it up? You, you, you must have thought, geez, if, if I was writing this, I, I might have tweaked it this way or that way. What, what would you have done? Wow. Gosh. You know, in some ways. I think that Ryan Johnson did such an amazing job with the eighth movie with uh, the one that came before that uh, I felt like he was sort of saying really the move, the story ends here and he ends it with kids looking far away, sort of like Luke. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I felt the same way in the, at the end of the eighth movie, I thought, well, where are we going to go from here? Because I feel like they wrapped up a lot of loose ends. we got the end of Luke Skywalker. Like you said, there was the boy looking at the stars. I thought, I'm not sure there was a lot more to look forward to in the ninth movie, but then there was a ninth movie. So, yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, I wish, I wish that Kylo had gotten more. I felt like all through the, the three, it's really more Ray's story than it is his. But yes, if, if you follow like who has the challenging arcs, they both do. And in some ways, his is much harder. He has so much to overcome that mm-hmm. I was intrigued. I, I would have wished for more somehow about that. And also, like, I, I think Ray's story is great. It's just tying her back to the Skywalkers in the end felt like it felt like a bow you don't need. You don't need that to right. be tied up like that. Let her go forward be the mm-hmm. be the next thing rather than more of the last mm-hmm. you know it was interesting Kylo Ren's arc was interesting to me because I had a hard time seeing how he was turned to the dark side because it seemed as though he had relatively supportive parents who maybe got divorced it looked like they separated at some point along the journey yeah. but yeah. and maybe that's how this dark influence but he had Luke and he had Leia and so it seemed like his father loved him and fought for him towards until the very end his arc of turning evil, I think, was the part, hard part for me to really get behind. But then turning back to good at the end, that that made sense to be yeah. who he truly was and who he was truly raised to be by his parents and his family. I will say I feel I felt like one of the great choices of that movie is that they tied the death of Leia to his conversion, that yes. he, he feels her die and it changes him. That to me was that's the, I mean, it was horrifying and so sad that Carrie Fisher died before that movie could be made or, or just at all. She's just an, sure. such an amazing woman Yeah, and, uh, to be able to find it, to take that moment and make it something important in the story. I just thought it was very moving, very, very moving. Yeah. It was, that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. She was funny. She was a very funny person, great performer. So Father, switching gears here a little bit, back in January of this year, you wrote, I would call a very brave, a very forthright 
article on coming out as, as a gay priest. And you wrote a, a wonderful op-ed. You've, you've been very open about your sexuality and how the Jesuit community accepted you and supported you through this whole process. Was there something internally at this point in your life that caused you to write that article? Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I've been very grateful that I've been able to write about it and that the people's responses have been very kind. I think, so I'm 52, and I just, as I've gotten older, I have felt like, I mean, I, it's not like I, in writing that, it wasn't like I was recently revealing to myself or other people who right. knew me that I was gay, but it it felt like, um, I just felt like I was getting to a moment in the church that, in my own life in the church, that I guess I was afraid that I was living in a bigger closet, mm. that actually having come out to friends and or within the society, I thought I was out and honest and forthright, but then it felt like maybe I'm not, maybe this is, I've just found another way of being comfortable with keeping a secret. And I feel like, I feel like the church, one of its big challenges, at least the hierarchy of the church is, is this whole secretive nature of things, which I think we're currently trying to overcome and change, but I don't think, I think we resist it as much as we try to support it. So for me, coming out was in a way, in part anyway, it was about trying to find a way for myself to resist that impulse to secrecy and to Mm -hmm. say like, I don't really, I think that impulse is extremely dangerous and undermines credibility and ends up hurting people. And I don't want to be a part of that. So yeah, a lot of it was that. Also, I don't know what this exactly looks like yet, I guess, but I find it very hard that other queer Catholics they face such abuse or misunderstanding by the church, by again, by some figures within the church, which are not necessarily the hierarchy, but but it certainly includes members of the hierarchy. They face that. And then queer priests, in general, we don't have to deal with that ourselves. So we're not really, you know, Pope Francis about, you know, you want to have this, the smell of the sheep on your hands. You want to be with the community. And I feel like often the way the church is structured, queer clergy we get a pass. I don't feel good about that. And I think many queer clergy don't, that we, we, we try in different ways to help those situations or to steer them in different, in different paths. I don't know, personally, it, it just feels really safe and not right. So, so yeah, so those are some of the things kind of mm-hmm. swirling. And, in and you say you received some good feedback, I imagine from your brother priests, as well as from the community. Yeah, I, I think I, yeah, both. Yes, both uh, other Jesuits for whom this wouldn't have been a surprise that right. I wrote about it might have been. But again, obviously I did that with permission. I didn't just like. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I felt like I've gotten a lot of letters from other priests or people who are thinking about entering the priesthood who are gay and just their own questions. I've been very humbled because I don't think of myself as really like, but any smarter than anybody else. So to have people kind of want to share what their own experience has been or their own questions mm-hmm. has been really humbling. That's wonderful. Do you think that it'll encourage other gay priests to come forward and tell their stories or have they since, since this was published? I don't know that they have. There are, I mean, there are certainly other gay priests who talk about their experience. There's a guy in Milwaukee who's, who's spoken really openly and eloquently a number of times. Brian mm-hmm. Massengale at Fordham is someone who uh, is again, like, I think he's just so incredibly eloquent and insightful about the experience of being queer and a priest and Catholic. But I hope so, because I I actually think the way the system is set up, if we don't come out kind of en masse, then the system's not going to change. Right. 
And certain stereotypes of what a gay priest is or, or what homosexuality is, they're just going to continue to sort of to be out there. Like it actually takes real representation to challenge those ideas. It's the people you know and meet that help you understand what queer actually means versus what you think or you've been told that it means. It's the same, mm-hmm. just like the APA, the American Psychiatric Association in the 70s. It wasn't until a whole bunch of psychologists began to talk, talk about being queer and also began to work to change the APA's definition of homosexuality. Once they did that, things changed very fast. And I feel like the church is ripe for something similar to happen because there are many queer religious priests, brothers, sisters, and they're doing amazing things. And so, yeah, I I hope, but everybody's got to decide that for themselves. There are real risks involved in the society. I'm relatively privileged. I think the society is more accepting and more open to the conversation than other places. There are certainly priests in dioceses where if they came out, they could get fired or they could be punished in some other way. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's part of the problem, actually. That's how the system is set up. There's, there's some real dark structures in place that are, that need to be exposed so that they can be changed. Mm -hmm. You know, reading some of your articles recently, you, you wrote one on John Mulaney that kind of dovetails into this conversation kind of an interesting way. I'm going to quote you here on on, on the article. You said, our relationships with public figures are built out of the interaction between the personas they put forward and our own imaginations, which develop those personas in ways that we may not even be aware that we're doing. So you compared how two people might view a clip of Pope Francis and have different, completely different reactions to him. Do you think that is some of the disconnect we see that's the result of some of the disconnect we see from people falling away from the church, not understanding our mission today or, or misinterpreting personas or the, the personality, if you will, of, of the church. Sure. I definitely think that part of what we're seeing in, in people falling away or, or some of their criticism is about kind of what are they bringing to that moment? What, what kind of how do they interact with the persona that's presented before them, whether it's of the pope or a bishop or somebody in their parish? Yeah, I definitely think that's a part of it. I also think, I think it's worth all anybody who's in a position of authority or leadership to be considering what is the persona that I am presenting, because right. people are going to run with that in ways that you might not expect. Like, let's say a, a, a bishop is known for, or, or a priest for that matter, for being kind of a disciplinarian. There might be really good reasons why, mm-hmm. but if that's the main persona people meet, then that's what they're going to run with. And that may not represent who the that, that priest or leader actually is, but they've kind of created the circumstances that then create those problems as well. Mm-hmm. If that well, makes I, sense. I, and you compared it to, to John Mulaney and you know some of the recent challenges he's had publicly being going into rehab, divorcing his wife of seven years, having a relationship now with Olivia Munn. You know, people had a certain image of him and he worked those. He worked his wife, as you said in the article, into his comic routine. So it became a part of the uh, John Mulaney persona that we expected, yeah. that we anticipated, that we laughed with. And my, my kids and I watched that uh, show, on, that his specials on Netflix numerous times. So we, we love John Mulaney. But it is interesting. Me too. You can translate. You can really translate a lot of that into what we experience today in the church. Yeah, no, that, that, those ideas about Mulaney and the kind of the way we interpret him, those aren't original to me. That's something that's actually the kind of the the conversation that's gone on around him is first, like, 
first it's he's betraying the image he's given us. And then it's people writing about that saying, why would we think that? And why do we get to think we have an opinion about what this man does in his private life? Yeah, I think those things are similar, are similar dynamics in the church. They're just human dynamics Yeah, we interpret based on what we're given. And then we might run with it in ways, or if, or if a person tries to change, it might be hard for us to accept that. Yeah, mm-hmm. And then you translate that into some of the the abuse, the abuse scandal, which has rocked the church for the last 20 something years now. And it's been on again, off again, but just, you know, people fall away. And, and that, now that is, I guess that's, that's going against, you know, we as a church, we trying to live up to a mission and then that image is changed and people fall away. So, I mean, I think it's just an interesting way of, of looking at the different relationships people have with an organization, with a mission. And then this poor man who's, uh, who's obviously going through a crisis and addiction yeah. and, uh, and loss of a family. It's, I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting to bring up the abuse crisis because in a way, I think what happened at the beginning of the abuse crisis is that it's is similar to Mulaney in that people were suddenly rocked by the right. church is not what they've presented itself to be or, or our leaders and things like that. And that's been a a continuing part of the problem is that even after the first wave of revelations, then there are further waves. And then there's the waves of like how much cover up there continues to be. And so, but actually it's interesting. I think we've reached a point where the problem is that the church, church leaders won't accept and sort of acknowledge the degree to which the church is broken in the, in this way, in this sense of cover up and secrecy and abuse and as a result, so like now our image is, this is kind of a, an organization that has serious problems and brokenness in it. And what our, I feel like our leaders should be doing, at least in part, is saying, yeah, that's right. That's right. This is a broken organization. We are broken people, and we have to learn and grow from this. And instead, I feel like oftentimes we just want to move on, and we want to go back to like, but, but actually, like, here's our position of strength. Here are the things we're good at. And that's fine. We have so many good things that we do in the church, whether it's, you know, social work and work for people who are in need or the ways we communicate the gospel. But at this point, it often to me feels like we're ignoring the elephant in the room and everybody else sees it. It's really like you can't ignore it anymore, but we continue to insist on that at times. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're absolutely right. You also mentioned in the article how this this whole sense of a parasocial persona or whatever Uh, affects you personally as a priest, the, 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 the person they see in the altar, the, the persona that you're expected to project. And then there's, you know, there's the real Jim McDermott or the, the Jim McDermott that who you are. Yeah, no, no, I find uncomfortable. it yeah. does. And like, that's part of the job, right? That's not right. I, you can't, you can complain, but it's like, that's just how it is. I didn't really expect that to be as big a deal as it is. And it probably is another part of why I wanted to come out because like during the pandemic, I said mass on Facebook and say in June, which is pride month, I at least once at one of those masses, maybe more than one, I talked about queer Catholics and pride and things like that. I wasn't talking about my own experience. And then after those masses, people would say to me, it's so good of you to bring that stuff up, right? To talk about those people. And I thought I'm getting credit for something that is, I shouldn't. I'm not doing that because I'm a nice guy. I'm doing that because I'm queer too. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm speaking from a personal place. I want you to know that. It's not exactly my agenda because I, I feel that way. I want to feel that way about anybody, that they deserve to be respected and cared for and seen in the, the whole of who they are. I don't want you to think like I'm taking some 
risk in a way when actually the risk is I should be telling you, oh, by the way, I'm one of them, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And it it takes a lot of courage and it takes time. But, you know, more and more people have to have those conversations in order for an organization to change. And we're just now, I think, coming to a point in our society where it's okay to begin to have those conversations or at least at at least on some level. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's so weird. I think the church is so far behind on this and it's much farther behind in other places than the United States. But I mean, when you think that, like I said, the APA, they had these conversations over 40 years ago and our church is still at a place where sort of the equivalent members, the priests rather than the psychologists Mm -hmm. are still sort of dancing around and and don't feel safe. It's sad to me. Yeah. I hope that we can, I hope things can change. Well, you're giving people a lot of hope, at least by beginning that conversation in the way that you do oh, you uh, in, in the variety of different ways that your, your Facebook, your Twitter. It's a joy to see how you are translating some of the, the social pieces that we see in, in just everyday media and translating that into the faith that we have as Catholics. Oh, well, thanks. I, I appreciate that. I'm glad that you think so. Yeah. One of the initial articles that I had seen, had had read recently from you was Catholics deserve better homilies. And this struck me as a a candidate for the diaconate because we just, uh, we've completed a couple of different courses on on homiletics and actually had my professor on a couple of weeks ago uh, to talk about homily best practices. But you offered five tips for some of your fellow preachers that I thought were kind of fun. And I think as we look at trying to bring people back to church, wouldn't you agree that we kind of have to look at everything that we're doing in, in, a, in a way that you're a communicator and we have to look at all the ways in which we communicate the word of God and then how we're communicating that? For sure. I, I absolutely think. I think that the coming back from the pandemic is a great opportunity. Hopefully there will never be an, a, a sort of a global or national reset moment mm-hmm. like we're in right now. We've all missed things during the pandemic in terms of our religious communities and experience, but we've also probably learned things about what works for us, about new possibilities, either that we've tried or we've seen other people try. Like one thing for me, and I still, I don't quite know how we do this in the church, but I feel like it's important when you do mass on Facebook, you can, people can make comments the whole mass through, right? Right. They can, they can offer petitions of their own, the whole community, and it doesn't stop the mass in its tracks. Mm-hmm. And that is a powerful experience. Like people who, who are part of that community would say, oh, you know, it was so nice that I did that. But I felt like what made that work is that everyone was really a part of it. You know, they really like, they shared what was going on in their lives. So you felt like you were a part of a community. And I look at that experience and say, there has to be some way of giving people that at a mass, at a Sunday mass, daily mass, you see some of that happening. But to me, it was very striking that as much as we talk about the full participation of the community, that that's what Vatican II asks for or invites us to, I don't think we've gotten anywhere near that yet. Like most of the mass really is the the most participation that people get to offer is they get to sing, which is great. If your community has singing, it's like a great but there's more that we can do. There's more, I think, there should be more opportunity for them to share, to bring what's actually going on in their lives into the prayer of the community, whether mm-hmm. that's spoken or there's a part of the mass. I had this idea where you everybody can go to the front and like post something that they're praying for, or at the religious ed Congress, they do this thing where they have like a screen and there's, I guess it's through Twitter. Somehow people are posting their prayers, sort of like you post on Facebook 
Yeah. So I'm with you. That's a long answer to, I really do think this is a great moment and opportunity. And if we just go back to what we're doing, even if you think it's going well, I think we're missing out. We're missing an, a chance to just think about what could be. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that a lot of dioceses are now coming back, they're lifting the restrictions or lifting the dispensation, I should say, and inviting parishioners to come back to mass. And it's been a big challenge for many dioceses. People, you know, I was sitting on a comfortable couch for 17 months yeah. and I watched it on my computer screen or on YouTube. And now you're asking me to come back. From what I've seen, it, there's a big disconnect with people understanding the real presence of the Eucharist and the, their need to receive Jesus and to be physically present. Are, are you seeing that? I guess, I guess, yes. I mean, I think, right, the fact that people aren't coming means that that argument or that that part of our faith is not currently compelling in the way okay. that we would like it to be. It's incumbent upon the, the church to help to help people feel like that could be important for them again, or that that's meaningful. And mm-hmm. I think just saying like, well, this is part of our faith. The Eucharist right. is the center of our faith. Yes, that's absolutely true, but that may not get people to come just right. saying that even though we would think, well, it's obvious. So yeah, I think again, it's sort of incumbent on the church to think of ways or experiences that can allow people, but I, I think it's a little early for those kinds of arguments because the pandemic's not over. You know, right. a lot of places in the country, it's still incredibly unsafe. And to me, I think we're in this middle period of sort of how do we encourage people and also acknowledge that there are still safety issues to grapple with, and we don't want people to come back if there's serious risk to their health. Um, sure, sure. No, that that makes a lot of sense. And in the meantime, we have the opportunity to continue to experiment with Facebook and YouTube and other digital medias where people have the opportunity to engage and respond. I had not thought of that, the, the opportunity for people to, to put in the chat. I was watching a lot of Father Mike Schmitz on Sunday mornings mm, on YouTube mm. and, and the comments on his just fly through the entire liturgy. Yeah, 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 yeah. We almost have to shut them off because they can be very distracting. I guess it is an opportunity that maybe maybe people hadn't thought about further where they could be further engaged in the liturgy. That's interesting. Oh, thanks. So going back to your article real quick, I was yeah, curious I was... about the Jesuit. You said for Jesuits, put your three points away for the, for your homilies. Those, so was that how you were taught as Jesuits? You make your three points in your homily and then. I actually, I think that my preaching teacher was a guy named Father Tom Kane, who's a Paulist. And mm-hmm. I think he would say to me, no, no, that's what you came with. I didn't teach you that. <laughs> I think he's right. I think that early in our training, that three points is something you hear about a lot. I'm not sure I got it from, I think my preaching teacher is probably one of the people who said, stop doing that, that that's, but you sort of learn after you've been presiding or preaching for a while, that's just too much stuff. People don't need all that. And, And in fact, have you ever been in a church where sort of the sound is such that you have to be really slow about how you talk because the sound starts to to get on top of itself. Yeah. And then all you're hearing is like, you know, you're not hearing anything they're saying. Yeah. Well, that's what I think if you give too much in a homily, that's what you're doing. People's brains, it just becomes like a, just like a a mush of, Mm -hmm. of what, of like gray, like, what are they going to walk away with? I don't know. Maybe the first thing that you said, which I think I wrote right about just briefly in that article. Yeah. The first Mm -hmm. thing you say is pretty important. That's like, that's terrain that, you know you have their attention for at least a second. So to really privilege it, to really see that it, you want it to be something important. Yeah. 
you, you wrap it up your fifth point, not to go into every point, but just to wrap up this piece of the article, but you, you say, be a human being. Are priests afraid to be a human being from the pulpit? I don't think I said it quite that bluntly. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's the way I just said it. (laughs) I, I think, and this is something I feel like I've learned slowly over time. I think there are many priests that are really good at this. And I think maybe diocesan priests even better. The more transparent you are and just sort of about who you are, and that doesn't mean you have to talk about who you are. It doesn't mean you have to tell stories about your aunt and uncle. The more you can sort of be okay in, in your skin, if that translates, that becomes a homily in and of itself for people. And it helps people mm-hmm. to understand that they're okay too. There are homilies I've given where I thought the content of this homily is really challenging and people should be mad at me and they're not. And then I'll think, did I screw that up? Did I fail? And sometimes it's like, yeah. Or is that really the point? Should I be trying to get people pissed off? No, not necessarily. But mm-hmm. part of the way I've understood that over time is that they see you trying to be just yourself. Yeah. Just whoever that is. And whoever that is doesn't have to be, I don't mean like be like me, like talk about pop culture or try right. to be funny or something. Like if you're pious, if you are a genuinely sort of pious person, then if when you are that person, it will help people, even if they're not, because mm-hmm. that's who you are. That's who you, not who you think you should be, not who you're afraid you have to be, but who you are. Like, I wouldn't say I, I do that very well all the time or that I knew that going in. It's just over the years. Again, actually saying mass on Facebook was weirdly helpful for me in the sense that I felt like I was doing it in my place. I was just at home. It was kind of like this, like talking to people yeah. And it was liturgy and it helped me feel like, oh, I guess just who I am, my my normal self is enough. I don't have mm-hmm. to put on anything more than that. You know, I think it ties into your newsletter and your blog and, and, and the things that you write about on a, on a regular basis. Clearly, pop culture is something that has interested you for a very long time. And so mm-hmm. let me ask you this question. Is it a lens by which you see your spirituality or is your spirituality a lens by which you see the pop culture? I mean, it's, it's a both. It's a, yeah. it's a, con- what's David Tracy, right? That conversation, that ongoing conversation between things, mm-hmm. that revelatory of both. I will say there are many times while I'll be watching a television show, especially, and something in it will unveil or open up something in me about who I am or my relationship with God or a yeah. desire in my heart in a way, very similar to like, I think prayer can work. I find that pop culture can often be a spiritual experience, and and I'm grateful for that. I, did, I would, wouldn't have thought that as a kid, but as an adult, mm-hmm. that's definitely. It's very important. cool, and and well, with technology and social media the way it is, you 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 have a platform now that we didn't have when we were kids. You know, for it's sure. amazing. It is. You know, I, I saw that you were a screenwriter for the um, TV show Preacher. What was that was. like? It was wild. It was crazy. You know, Preacher is an insane show. It's based on a yeah. comic book. It's about a like a broken down minister who he gets this power to basically compel people to do what he says. Mm-hmm. And he thinks it's the Lord and that he's supposed to use it to save people. But right. of course, it's it's not that. And so everything goes horribly wrong. It was a great experience because it was a show that both had a real sort of spiritual question at its core and drive. It was a lot about mercy and redemption, but it was so insane and sort of comic booky and irreverent. Like his best friend yeah. is a vampire. And then his girlfriend is like, an, maybe she's a contract killer. I think in the, in the TV show, she's more just a criminal. I loved kind of throwing all these elements together and yet 
finding in them something like at times profoundly spiritual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, Father, this has been a lot of fun having you on our, our podcast. Before we let you go, can you tell folks where to find you? Oh, sure. So I write for America Magazine. So if mm-hmm. you go to Mag- America Magazine, usually I got, I'm working on something. And then I'm on Twitter at Pop Culture Priest. And it's, it's at Pop Culture, but with no E, mm-hmm. uh, Pop Culture, C-U-L-T-U-R, Priest. And then I write, I write a newsletter once a week that's called Pop Culture Spirit Wow, which is about pop culture and spirituality. And I write about screenwriting at a thing called Craft Service. It's on Blogspot. So I'm a little bit kind of all over the place. That's awesome, though. That's fun. It sounds like you're having fun with it, though. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I enjoy it a lot. Awesome. Well, Father Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. And for all of our listeners, this will be out next week on our YouTube and on our Apple podcasts and wherever you download your your favorite podcast. So thank you again, Father. This was fun. Sure. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. I want to thank Father Jim for being on our show this week. It was fun talking about movies and TV on our show today. It was a nice change of pace. I'll leave links to Father Jim and his work in our show notes today. And for the full video presentation of this episode, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Well, that's our show this week. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and to Pottery Studios for their support of our show. Once again, if you'd like to check out our daily prayer video on kristenscrosses.com, I'll leave a link in our show notes. And if you'd like more information about this show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for more than two decades. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everybody. I hope you have a terrific week. Take care and God bless.